point, let me just invite Julie and Jonathan up right away. Jonathan Doherty uh, from San Antonio, Texas, um, with Be Broken Ministries. They were doing a women's conference here. We were at the women's conference yesterday, yeah, most everybody. So glad that you guys uh, are back. I know many of the ladies that were here uh, were Mercy Hill ladies. Um, we're just going to have a conversation this morning. Uh, yes, we're going to talk about sex, but, and this is what I love about these guys, but even bigger than that, about the gospel and about Jesus, and about how what he has done for us uh, through his death, burial, and resurrection uh, ties into and applies to and is so vitally connected to uh, the way that God has designed us as men and as women. So can we start out with, uh, Julie, maybe you can go first, but can each one of you just give maybe like a five to seven minute version of how you got here uh, to where you're doing what you're doing now today uh, with Authentic Ministries and Be Broken and just kind of a little sure. snippet of how God's yeah. got you. Yeah, um, my, I'm trained as a clinical psychologist, so uh, just in working with women and marriages, uh, naturally address sexual issues, but for most of my um, professional career in ministry, I was more of a generalist in talking about family life type issues um, and uh, I grew up here in Akron, uh, moved around a little bit for a while, worked at Focus on the Family, again, more in a generalist type uh, role of just helping people and their families and marriages. And then in 2011, 2012, uh, just as the result of the Lord really working in my heart and burdening my heart for just the sexual brokenness that is in the Christian family that's not addressed uh, I stepped out of Focus on the Family and with uh, uh, my co-founder, Linda Dillow, founded the ministry Authentic Intimacy, uh, where our mission statement is reclaiming God's design for sexuality. And, um, and so honestly, it was a very much a step of faith. I didn't really know what authentic intimacy would become, but just knew that the Lord was calling us to begin speaking honestly and openly about all the areas of sexuality that, that seem to be hidden or not honestly addressed um, within the Christian body. Uh, so talking about everything from what does healthy sex and marriage look like to how do we address issues of pornography, sexual abuse recovery. Uh, and it grew into, in our culture, how do we understand gender? How do we minister effectively to people that are uh, identifying with issues like LGBTQ issues? Um, so became a pretty broad-spanning ministry, just discipling primarily women in their sexuality. What does it look like uh, to know the scriptures, to know God's design for sex, and to be into actively applying that in all aspects of our life? And then I'd say within the last year or so, the ministry has also begun to do a lot of training with uh, Christian leaders, uh, with pastors, nonprofit ministries of how do we integrate the topic of sexuality with the larger call of the Great Commission to reach people with the gospel and to help them understand what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Um, so we are based out of Akron, although we have um, people that work on our team around the country. We do a lot of ministry across the country, but uh, it's been a difficult journey with a lot of spiritual warfare, but also a great joy of being able to see people just get set free when we speak God's truth and when uh, we walk with them through usually an area of their life that has been pretty silent over the years. It's just been amazing to see what the Lord does when we speak His love and His hope and His truth boldly. I don't have any letters after my name. I'm just a guy that came out of a lot of sexual brokenness and uh, God took through a recovery journey So, and then um, called me into ministry with three little words, tell your story. 
So the Reader's Digest version of my story is I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I trusted Christ at an early age, but at the age of 12, I was introduced to pornography by a friend. And that set its hooks in me, and all the way through junior high and high school, um, I became a regular porn user secretly, so I started living kind of a divided life. Got into college, it went beyond porn, uh, and was actually, I was sexual with other people. Eventually got married because I thought that would cure the problem. Uh, didn't cure the problem, and if anything, it sort of exposed things even more. Um, there was even more sexual brokenness in my marriage that led to multiple affairs and uh, lots of unhealthy behaviors. In 1999 is when all of that came crashing down. God uh, radically intervened in my life through my wife leaving me. Um, and it was her, her willingness to take that bold stand and draw a line in the sand that caused me to really evaluate what's going to happen next. And thankfully, God met me with his grace in a profound way. And uh, that started a journey of recovery that also included the miracle of uh, reconciliation with my wife many months later. Um, and then we have children. And then in 2003, God called me into full-time ministry with this commission of just tell your story. And so I've been doing that for the last 17 years through Be Broken Ministries. And uh, we started originally as really just a ministry that was trying to help men specifically deal with sexual addiction recovery. But we've expanded now uh, to where our mission is to help men, women, and families move from sexual brokenness to wholeness in Christ. And then, like Julie said, we also like to come along as a ministry alongside other leaders and, and churches and try to also equip them for being able to help men, women, and families in that same way. And so we have uh, intensive workshops for men. We have wives care uh, for ladies who've been betrayed sexually. We also have an entire online training platform for leaders and for parents. Uh, but we have a lot of resources that we try to help people move from that sexual brokenness to wholeness in Christ. And it's been quite a journey. Um, we, we believe that story is an important part of the process. When we are willing to share our stories in safe, grace-based environments, transformation takes place. So that's what our ministry is all about. Yeah. Amen. No, thank you. So can you guys both uh, just comment and kind of right away here at the beginning of our conversation, just connect the dots and don't feel any time to rush through this, but like um, connect the dots between the gospel and our sexuality. Like that we sometimes, uh, well not, or a lot of times we really tend to compartmentalize these things that mm -hmm. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Uh, I just have to ask him into my heart, believe him, which is like there's, there's truth in that, but then there's this other area of our lives, you know, with sexual temptation and sin and brokenness or abuse or whatever, that it just always, we never, are able to bring it into the gospel and the good news. I know Jonathan in the green room yesterday, you and I were talking a lot about, or you were saying, using the term about drawing the line to Christ and um, you know, just connecting everything back to the gospel. But can you guys comment I on that? I think Julie actually articulates this way better than I do. Uh, so, but I wanna, you know, when we talk about um, sexuality and specifically God's design for sexuality and marriage, right? Uh, sometimes we point to Ephesians chapter 5, where it talks about um, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And then he goes on and talks about he who loves his wife uh, loves himself because, you know, he doesn't hate his own body, but cherishes it and nurtures it. And then he talks about, uh, but I'm talking about Christ and the church when he says the two shall become one flesh. And I think sometimes we just sort of extrapolate that out and go, that doesn't make any sense. Where, how did we go all the way back to Genesis when we're talking about a husband loving his wife? But if you do go back to Genesis and you start to see design, you see things that God did in making them male and female and then bringing them together in this covenant bond of marriage and saying that that is the bond in which there's this sexual expression. And then you start realizing that there are lines being drawn then to the gospel between Christ and his church. Christ is the, represented as the husband in that Ephesians uh, passage. The church is his bride. And so therefore you see that there is a connection between how God has made male and female in the covenant bond of marriage, similar to the covenant bond of Christ and his church. There's an exclusivity to that relationship in the same way that God has designed marriage to be an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman. There's an exclusive relationship between Christ and his church. Only those who are in Christ are in his church and, and in, that, in that bond. 
And then there's also, we see in the design of, of sexual intimacy, that what is produced as a result of that sexual intimacy is new life. Well, when Christ comes into the believer, new life is birthed in us. And so there's all these parallels that are made. And I think when we can see that, uh, that all throughout Scripture, God even uses this language around that image of marriage being a connection between his relationship with us when he calls the Israelites in the Old Testament an adulterous people when they wander away from him through idolatry. He uses the word adulterous or like harlots. It's like that's very sexual language. That has to do with, again, going back to that covenant of marriage is not arbitrary from God's perspective. It is meant to give us a very vivid and real picture of what he has intended for the intimacy and the exclusivity of the relationship that he has with his people. I know you have plenty more that you can share yeah, on this as well. Um, yeah, I think people have a lot of questions about sex. And um, one of the things that we do at our ministry is answer people's questions about sex. Um, but with all the questions we have, we're not asking the right question. And the right question is, why are we sexual people? Why did God create us as sexual people? And uh, you are walking around with an answer to that question, even if you don't realize it. Everybody answers that question in one way or another. And the culture, which impacts us quite a bit, answers that question. Well, our sexuality is part of our expression. It's part of our identity. It's, the, it's part of being me, me being me. And so authenticity is I get to do whatever I desire because my sexuality is, a, is an expression of me. I think uh, traditionally the church has said we're sexual people because we make babies when we get married. And we've had a very simplistic understanding of the purpose of our sexuality. So somebody who's not married would say, well, why am I sexual? Uh, what's the purpose of my sexuality? Or uh, is there more to sex than making babies? And what Jonathan is talking about is there's a reason why we are sexual that we often don't realize. And the reason is that God created us as sexual people so that we would have a physical experience on earth to help us understand the longings that we have for intimacy, that God created us for an intimate covenant relationship with himself. And it's a passionate relationship. It's a relationship that, as you said, involves exclusivity. There's a jealousy that God has for his people. Uh, and God created sexuality to represent all of that, uh, where we become passionate for God as we become passionate to be in an intimate relationship here on earth. Uh, that there's an essence of being faithful to the covenant promise we've made, even with our bodies and our sexuality. Uh, we go through seasons of longings, uh, sexual longings that are unmet, whether that's in singleness or in marriage. And that's supposed to point us ultimately to, for the fact that we weren't created to do life alone. And uh, we were created for community here on earth, but more importantly, we were created for intimacy with God. And so if we begin to see the reason of our, that we're sexual as being that our sexuality is a physical picture, it's a metaphor, it's a way that we experience something here on earth that helps us understand what we were eternally created for, for intimacy and passion with God, then it gives us a framework to begin addressing all the other questions we have related to our sexuality and how it gets broken uh, through our experiences or through the lies we believe. So, I think... Can, can I add just yeah, one thing to that? Yep. And I think that's one of the reasons why it can, it can so easily... Uh, sexual expression can so easily become an idol in our lives mm -hmm. is because we do have those longings for God. We do have those longings that are meant to ultimately point us to this intimate relationship with God. And if we get sidetracked making sexual expression or sexual activity or sexual desires kind of an end unto itself, then we've sort of missed where the end really is, which is in that ultimate intimate connection with God. So that's why it's so easy for us to get distracted in, with the idols of sexual things. So both you guys with your ministries, um, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but they probably exist in part because the church in general hasn't done a terrific job of dealing with this. I, I know, Julie, your phrase, sexual discipleship. Yeah. Is it because 
Our sexuality hasn't been integrated into the discipleship process, which is the mission of the church, is to, is, is to make disciples. What are, and I know you guys love the church, you know, but with, and I know you're not gonna bash the church, but what, what are the big mistakes that you see the church at large making in regards to uh, not knowing how to deal with, deal with this? And I'll kind of break it into two categories. Was it, is it, because you talked about the message, the gospel, is it more in the message or is it in the method? Or is it, or is it both? Mm, I think it's both. Yeah. And it's, it is in our heart to bash the church. It's our heart to encourage the church because we've adopted traditions for hundreds of years of Christian leaders and even seminaries not training the integration of sexuality with the rest of the Christian life. Uh, and so uh, we're doing what we were taught to do, which is be quiet about these topics. And we've got to change that. Uh, we've got to realize that the, the Bible is very explicit uh, in talking about sexuality. Everything from calling sexual sin what it is and describing it in story and in teaching uh, to in the Song of Solomon portraying what erotic sexual love was created to be. And so we're not reflecting what the Bible actually says or what God says about this topic. Uh, and so there are things in our methods that need to change. We really believe um, that church should become the place where you go for with your questions, all your questions, uh, because God cares about the questions you have about what does it look like to recover from a porn addiction? What does it look like to heal in a marriage when there's been an infidelity? Uh, what does it look like uh, to channel my sexual desires in a way that honors the Lord? Uh, what does it look like to address same-sex attraction, gender confusion, uh, all, all of these, um, sexual abuse? These are the questions that the church should be the safest place to bring. Uh, and that hasn't been the case. I think a lot of people feel that if they voice their questions, there's going to be a lot of shame just for voicing those things. When in reality, we all have different aspects of sexual brokenness that need to be exposed and addressed with love and with truth. I think another thing that that's created is kind of an us versus them mentality, that there are some people who are broken and need our prayer and our help, and the rest of us have it all together. And that's just not true. And one of the things that both of us have been able to learn through doing ministry is everyone has stuff that they, that they need to deal with. Uh, everybody has baggage. There's no us versus them. The gospel says that we, we are all, apart from God, we're all sinners. Our righteousness is as filthy rags and that we all are just beggars at the cross, uh, just passing on what God has taught us. And so changing that dynamic of people feeling like if I admit that I'm struggling, then I'm in the them category. I'm in the shame category. And I think uh, without realizing it, some of the, the purity culture language has created this sense that some people are pure and some people are, are impure. Instead of helping us just start with the gospel that our purity comes through the saving blood of Jesus Christ and we're all on a journey of, of walking towards what does it mean to honor him with every aspect of life, including our sexuality. And I'll say one more thing, and I know, Jonathan, you have some thoughts to share. But another thing is the focus on morality solely and not maturity. So when we only talk about it, is this a sin? Does God approve of this? We only talk about sex in the context of morality. We never challenge each other to start asking the question, what does it look like? to grow in my maturity and grow in my understanding of what God's design for sex is and how to live that out. So for example, a, a couple gets married and let's say they've checked the boxes of morality. We didn't sleep together before we got married. They get married and really they're very immature in their understanding of what it is to love each other sexually, but we don't give them any tools to mature. Uh, we don't give them any tools to learn what's the difference between lust and love, even within your marriage. What does it look like to address conflicts about sexuality with a spirit of humility and forgiveness? But they think because we're married and we're just having sex with each other, we've, we've checked all the boxes where God wants to do a lot more in teaching us the heart of what it is to become a lover. 
Uh, and so those are just some of the things that I think the church historically has not done well that we'd like to see shift, a shift in the way we're approaching these topics. Yeah, and I would say that even in my own personal experience of then trying to like enter into recovery and deal with my porn and sex addiction and all this kind of stuff, even in a church that I was going to that was like for me, I mean, they didn't kick me out. They, were, they wanted to help. Even in that, it was, uh, and we see this a lot in, in churches, is that the issue was we have a problem to fix in you. So it was like, counseling and groups and and those things are good counseling environments are great groups are good but it's always seen as like we're going to send you out on an island to fix your problem and then you can sort of integrate back into the full fellowship once you've sort of been fixed and i think that's a mentality that we have that comes from that idea of we're only going to deal with morality here like listen once you can kind of go over here and then check all the boxes that you're not doing these things that are immoral then we're going to let you back in and, and, and not really addressing the deeper heart issues. And so I think one thing that we can do as churches, and this is one of the things that I'm always encouraged, I even talked to you about this yesterday, I'm like, I think it's be, it'd be awesome if every single person at church went through a recovery program. Like, like realizing that, like you said, we all have brokenness, we all have junk in our lives. Maybe it hasn't gotten to the point of a complete strongholder or addiction uh, clinically, but I think there's value that can come from a lot of recovery language of realizing there's a lot of recovery language that is parallel to what we call in the Bible redemption, like redeeming things that have been lost and broken and, and uh, confused and chaotic. And so I think that's value that's got value to everybody. So when we can have more of an integrative mindset that says we've, we're all carrying something, whether, whether it be by your own will that you've brought sexual brokenness into your life or whether or not somebody else has dumped their brokenness into your life. We've all been broken in some way. And if we could see that we all need the same redeeming grace of Jesus, then maybe we would start actually being more gracious towards one another, no matter where we are each in our own personal journey. Because I do believe the us and them thing is very real, even if it's not, you know, it's never formalized. You know, we never formalize that in a church setting. I know even in my own church, it was never said, yeah, see those guys that meet on Tuesday night? That's the them. But there's kind of a vibe. Like, I remember a friend of mine who was actually starting a group at another church for guys who were struggling with porn addiction just wanting to get help. They would, uh, they would meet at a particular part of the building, and one, uh, uh, one of the pastors overheard somebody one time talking about how um, yeah, that, that's where they let the perverts meet. Mm. And it's like, it's extremely shaming, as if like something is inherently differently wrong and out of whack with those people. And it's kind of like the log in your own eye as you're trying to see the speck in the other. And so I think we need to be more uh, uh, gracious and realize that we all need the redeeming grace of Jesus. So let's, let me press on that a little bit more because, so is there, there seems to be, stereotype that like there is uh, there can be even in regards to addiction so alcohol drugs gambling whatever different forms of addiction but then there's sexual addiction is is, the, is there something diff I mean obviously it's different in some ways but what 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 are the diff what is the difference between sexual addiction and other addictions or should we not have a line there at all so what I would say about that, because we've dealt with that a lot over the history of our, of our ministry, uh, there, are, there can be differences uh, both physiologically and psychologically to a sexual addiction than other addictions because, I mean, the Bible even tells us that when one sins sexually, they sin against their own body. There is a different type, different nature to it. But I think it's, uh, the way to help you understand this is I think that sexual addiction and food addictions parallel one another because they are something that is literally woven into your biology. In other words, all other addictions are something that you would get uh, entangled with that are outside of you, whether it be drugs, alcohol, something else like that. And so therefore, in essence, in a simplistic kind of way, those can be put aside and you can walk away from them and learn new patterns to live. You cannot set aside your sexuality. You cannot set aside your biological need for food. 
And so in some ways, therefore, there are different components and dynamics to somebody who has developed a sexual addiction because you have to learn not only to give up and, and sort of walk away from the negative components of what you've engaged in your sexuality, but also to learn how do I live within this body that God has given me that has these very natural, normal sexual desires, and how do I manage that in a way that's honoring to God? So in some ways, what we've seen, we have many men over the years come into our, in our, into our ministry, and I can't even count the number of men that have said, you know what, I was a 20-year alcoholic, and compared to giving up beer, that was a piece of cake compared to overcoming the sexual addiction. I think it's because of that very real biological component that we have of being sexual creatures. But at the same time, I don't want to draw such a hard line there that then creates that us and them kind of a thing. Because the reality is then it, it allows us to have sort of a superiority, those who maybe have never gone to that extreme in, in misusing their sexuality or anything like that, to then think, I'm inherently better than somebody who has those struggles. So that's where I would say that line shouldn't exist. But in terms of treatment and care and recovery, I do think we need to have, uh, there are, there's special care you and treatment that's needed for folks that I think have a sexual addiction. Do you have anything to add to that, Julie? Yeah, I'm just going off of what you said, Jonathan. One of the challenges, as you said, with a sexual addiction or food addiction is not only is it within our body, but it's something good. And so um, people that are dealing with a sexual addiction or a food addiction, they begin hating their own desires. Uh, they begin hating their bodies because their bodies have betrayed them. Uh, and so there are people that are walking through a sexual addiction or even the spouse of a sexual addict who begins to say sex is the enemy and sexual desire is the enemy. But as we talked about earlier, our sexual desire, our sexuality is actually a powerful and good thing. Uh, and so there's that struggle of hating the way that it's been twisted and distorted by the enemy, the ways that we've engaged with the enemy in that, but then completely redeeming the fact that this is a good gift and uh, that healing means not just hating what's bad, but learning to embrace what's good. And uh, some people just get stuck with, uh, hey, if I can stay neutral and still hate sex, but not be doing sinful things, then I'm okay. But that's not full recovery. Uh, so in some ways, I think like your ministry hands, particularly women and couples off to our ministry to take over, okay, let's, let's start engaging in how do we build and enjoy what's good. And I would just, I think what you're saying is awesome. And one of the things we try to teach to that end of being able to transfer from not just trying to avoid what's bad, but actually embracing what's good, is we use the little phrase, feet follow focus. So you're always going to move in the direction of what you're focused on. And this is why a, like a don't do it mentality never actually leads to righteousness and maturity. Because if I tell you right now, don't think about a pink elephant. Don't think about its pink ears. Don't think about a pink trunk. Don't think about its pink tail. Do not think about its pink, you know, just don't think about a pink elephant. No matter how many times I put don't in front of that, all you're thinking about right now is a pink elephant. So when we have only like the morality line where we go, don't, don't, don't. When I have a guy that says, I get up in the morning, and I say, don't look at porn. I said, so you looked at porn today, huh? He's like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because even with the don't, you're actually focusing on the thing you're saying not to do. So to transition that is then to say, what does God have to say about my body and my desires and my identity in Christ? And as I focus on that, we're told as we think about whatever is true and lovely and right and pure and good and gracious and whatever is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. When we think on those things, our mind is being renewed and our feet start to move in that direction. We start to move in the direction of what we're focused on. So let's say you have a scenario, I think, fairly common one where uh, a husband either confesses that he has an issue with pornography or is found out uh, by his wife. Um, and by the way, let me stop there for just a second. What, what are the statistics that, because I know we always frame it that way, that the husband is the one that struggles with it. What are the statistics on porn use for husband or for men versus women? Do you, they're, they're always, it's a moving target, yeah. but it's always 
more men than women, yeah. but that gap has been closing. So for instance, about 35% of all hits on porn websites are by women. 35%. Yeah. Uh, rough estimates right now is that uh, Barna had done some research recently that basically said 63% of Christian men say that they um, have uh, view porn regularly. I think it's roughly around 20%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, say it, and it's generational. So, uh, so younger women in their teens, 20s, and 30s uh, are catching up with those statistics with men. Um, so uh, in those age ranges, is, is probably about 40% of women that Christian women that are struggling with pornography. Okay. Okay, so back to the question. Um, but let's say you have a husband, or it could be a wife, whatever, that uh, confesses or has found out that they're, they're struggling with this. Just as practically as you can, the just next steps. Like what best case scenario, again, may, might be possible for some, might not be possible for others, but like if it's, uh, if, if they're a part of a local church, mm-hmm. what, what should the next steps be in just Best case scenario. Call be broken ministries. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's definitely a great first step. Um, but even to back up a little bit more, first, pray. <laughs> I mean, it's the last thing you want to do in the moment, but cry out for help. Uh, cry out to the Lord for help to, to give you wisdom uh, and to help you. Uh, and I know Jonathan's going to give some really practical steps from his perspective. But there, it's a journey, and I think what happens in most marriages is it's found out and it's dealt with on a very superficial level of, I'm angry, how could you do this? Uh, the person that was uh, looking at porn says, I'm sorry, it's not about you, I won't do it again, and then you hope that it's not going to happen again. But because it's dealt with at a superficial level, it will happen again. Uh, you're not addressing the roots of why it happened and how you seek healing together. So I think for most couples, it takes a few discoveries uh, before they're desperate enough to say, we need help. We need to reach out and tell somebody that, uh, that we've got an issue that's bigger than us. And sometimes it's just one person. Maybe it's the spouse that's like, hey, you don't want to get help, but I'm getting help and I'm creating a healthy crisis in our marriage to say we can't continue with the way things are. Uh, and then there's a lot in, involved in that journey. Uh, it begins with telling somebody and, and getting the kind of help you need from a ministry like Be Broken, from uh, your local church with people that are equipped to start groups or do some counseling around that issue. But I'll, I'll say one thing from the perspective of Uh, let's say it's the woman who is addressing this with your husband, Uh, don't get stuck in the place of he's the problem. And, um, you know, one of the things that the Lord has taught me on my own personal journey is that verse that you mentioned about taking the log out of your own eye before you help your husband with a speck in his eye. A lot of times, if you're not the person that's looking at porn, you feel like now every issue related to your marriage is now on this person who's obviously in sin. Without first asking the Lord, would you search my heart? Would you help me to see uh, where I'm becoming judgmental, where I'm becoming bitter and holding on to uh, anger in a way that I shouldn't? Uh, Would you see where I'm becoming self-righteous? And so uh, both of you have a lot of work to do. It's not just let's send the guy to treatment and get him fixed. Every couple that I've known and worked with who really has gone through healing, the other person, the non-offending person will say, I had no idea how much work the Lord had to do in my heart, how much healing he had to do in my heart. And so it really is something that the Lord will take you through as a couple. Yeah, and so uh, the scenario that you mentioned is the one that we most commonly deal with in our ministry, where it's the, it's the husband who's got the, the sexual addiction or some kind of porn issue or something like that, and then it's the wife who's facing that betrayal. And so uh, typically then what we will do is we have a, an entire ministry for wives care, which deals with a lot of the betrayal trauma, because there's certain things she very much has to go through a real grief process in order to be able to get through to the points of forgiveness and release and some of those kind of things before she can ever consider moving on in whatever way, whether it be restoration in the marriage or, or whatever else. Um, a lot of our focus in terms of me and some of our, our, our men, men's staff that we have is, man, we're focusing on that guy and we're, we're 
trying to help him realize that this is a pivotal moment in his life in terms of what's going to happen next for his own integrity. So in, in some ways we, because what typically happens is a guy, if he has any um, sort of shred of conscience left, there's a sense of, I don't want to lose my marriage. I don't want to lose my family. You know, he's got kind of a panic response. Like, I want to fix things. Again, fix it, right? Fix the problem. And what we try to do is we try to, first of all, get him to realize that there's only one person that he's guaranteed to live the rest of his life with, and that's himself. And that's true of all of us, by the way. So we try to reframe his motivations for why he's actually going to go on this journey. Because if his motivation is anything other than to follow the Lord Jesus, those motivations can all fizzle and fade, and they can all be temporary. So as good as it is to have a motivation to say, I want to restore my marriage, and I want to have a good marriage, well, there's no guarantee that that could happen. And even if it does, where's his motivation for ongoing pursuit of greater integrity and greater maturity? If his wife comes back and forgives him and says, we can move on, if he has not dealt with the issue of the foundation of his heart and the foundational reasons for why he would ever want to pursue integrity in the first place, that it be the Lord Jesus and not anything else, then it's likely that at some point those old patterns are going to creep in and it's just a matter of time before he's doing these other things. One other very important thing, every single man that we've ever dealt with that has developed a sexual addiction has um, in some way in his life isolated himself from healthy relationships. In other words, he's sectioned off parts of his life that nobody knows about his wife included, which is why it's so devastating when a wife finds out this is what's been going on for 10 years. And so one of the key elements for a man to heal and recover and pursue integrity is authentic community with other men. Community where there can be truth and grace and accountability. But again, it's not just centered around morality. It's about how can we grow into mature godly men and it's amazing how when you have that larger vision for being a mature believer, that all of a sudden, all the things that are kind of what we consider the problems or the, the, uh, the details of our struggle start to work themselves out because if we stay focused only on the details, even if we fix that problem, what I've seen too many men uh, get locked into is what I call maintenance mode of recovery for the rest of their lives. In other words, they're then dependent upon like a support group or they are dependent on a counselor for, or a particular method for the rest of their lives. Instead of realizing the value of the community is because I need, to, I need other men to sharpen me, but I also need to sharpen other men. And therefore, you're, you're all growing together in, to greater maturity. That's really good. Can we get down into the weeds just for a second for... Uh the wife that is really working through this process of forgiveness. Um, as disciples, Jesus calls us to absolutely forgive. However, it's obviously not as easy as just flipping a switch. Like, I mean, I'd like you to both speak to it, but Jonathan, I was thinking like a little bit about your story. Like, what was it like in your wife's life when, you know, she found out about everything and her, her process of working through that. Yeah, so we were separated. She left. And, but, and so unbeknownst to me, all this stuff is going on where God is really healing her heart and God is taking her through a, a process. And, and let me just say, um, God did not tell her the day that she left me, you need to forgive that man. No, God met her and said, let me hold you for a while. L you need to cry. You need to grieve. You need to hurt. And so God brought women around. In fact, our pastor at the time even told her, he, he, he looked at her because she was struggling. She's like, I know, I'm a Christian. I know the verses. I'm supposed to forgive. And the pastor says, not right now. And she was like, what? I'd never heard anybody. A pastor is telling me I don't have to forgive right now? What's wrong with you? Is your theology wrong? And she started to unpack this idea of, even in Scripture, the promise of redemption was actually given thousands of years before the culmination of Jesus dying on the cross. So even God had this process in which he was going through to bring ultimate forgiveness to us. I will say this, when it got time to where God started turning a corner in her healing, where it was now time to address the forgiveness, I'm only sharing this with you. I'm not saying 
this is the template that God will use in everybody's life, but it's what he used in my wife's life. And when she told me this, I was like, that seems like a harsh way to go through this because God basically came to her when it was time to work through forgiveness. And, he's, and he said, Elaine, that's my wife's name. You've known me since you were a five-year-old little girl. That's when you trusted me as your savior. Have you been faithful to me since you were five years old? And of course, my wife, no, of course not. Have I forgiven you for your unfaithfulness to me? And she says, every time. She said, he said, it's time to work on you reflecting me in your husband's life. So it was as if God at a certain time in her healing brought a mirror out in order to show her where she had been, unf she had been unfaithful. And so in some ways he was giving her a sense of empathy for me to be able to recognize that she has received forgiveness faithfully from God, and he now wanted her to express that to me. And so that's when we started walking through where she was able to forgive. That still was a process. It wasn't like just a singular moment in time. There were some watershed moments where there were large things that, forg uh, that were forgiven. But the way my wife describes it is she says, forgiveness is a choice you make every day. So there's still things where you can have like a big moment where it's like, I forgive you, and I want us to move forward from this, but she says forgiveness is still a choice that must be made every day. Yeah, um, I love that you're presenting that as such a journey, and it is a journey, um, because a couple that works through this too quickly isn't doing the healing that needs to be done. Um, I'm thinking of the story of, in Jesus' life where Peter betrayed Jesus, and uh, there was a, a breach there was a break in trust. It wasn't sexual, but it was significant. And Jesus knew that it was going to happen. He told Peter, you know, be prepared because Satan wants to sift you. And when you are restored, so he even predicted that Peter was going to be unfaithful to him and betray him. Uh, and Peter had this deep remorse for what he had done. But Jesus forgave him in the moment. He even forgave him before Peter did this but he wasn't reconciled right away. Uh, when we read after Jesus was resurrected and Jesus had this very tender moment with Peter, uh, Jesus is asking Peter some questions. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter was defensive and he's like, well, yeah, I love you. And Jesus asked him again, do you love me? And Peter was like, well, yeah, I know, I love you. And then he asked him a third time, do you love me? And Peter got really hurt. Uh, Don't you know I love you? And it wasn't until then that they had this commissioning where Jesus said, okay, well then go feed my sheep. And there was a reconciliation. And although that happened in an afternoon, I think it's a process for what happens when we walk through forgiveness. To forgive is one thing. To forgive is saying, I, I am not going to punish you for the rest of your life. God is the judge. He's going to judge you. I'm, I refuse to nurture anger in my heart towards you for the rest of my life. Uh, and you can forgive one-sided. That's your choice between you and God. But reconciliation is a process of, I forgive you, but I don't trust you because you've broken trust. And that has to be rebuilt. And it has to be rebuilt by asking the question, do you love me? Or asking the question, can I trust you? And that's a process that a counselor can help walk you through, but it's not a quick process. Uh, because when uh, the marriage vows have been violated in such a profound way, trust needs to be rebuilt. Uh, and it takes time, and it takes conversation, and it takes difficult questions. One more question on that, and I, I don't want to pigeonhole you here, so you can just totally dodge this if you want, I guess. But like, give a timeline for a process of being able to work through forgiveness. And, and there, again, I know there, maybe there isn't one. Like, how long did it take you and your wife? And I, this would be okay, keeping in descriptive mind, and not prescriptive. Yeah, keeping in mind that our, our, we tell people all the time, our story's not a template, um, but it was about a year mm -hmm. for the forgiveness to take place. It was about five years before my wife said, I trust you. So again, not a template, but in, our, in, the, in the case of our story. Uh, but I always tell people it is still going to take time. There's not, 
there's not a formula right. for it, yeah. but I do tell people, don't expect it to be all wrapped up in a weekend. Yeah. yeah. It's going to take, yeah. and especially We're, depending on the offenses too, the degree to which there's been deep uh, brokenness of trust yeah. and the, the sexual betrayal and those kind of things, it's going to take a time. Just, were you guys separated for a year? We were separated for nine months, and then after that we got back together, and it was really in those first couple of months that then my wife was like, I've, I've reached the point of forgiveness, which was really between her and God, but make no mistake, trust had not been restored yet, and so it took a long time. For and I will say this then, uh, that trust element is very dependent upon the person who has done the betraying. Yeah, speak to that a little bit. Because uh, I think so, what's, even though I do believe that both forgiveness and trust are a type of gift that we give to someone, they're different. And in, 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 like you were saying, forgiveness can be just between me and God. There doesn't, sometimes forgiveness needs to take place when there shouldn't be reconciliation, reconciliation in relationships. So let's say an abusive relationship where there was, you were abused as a child. So, at some point, forgiveness needs to happen so you can be released from the bitterness, but that does not mean there's reconciliation in that relationship. But for restoration of a marriage, what I had to learn was, um, oh no, trust means I must be trustworthy. And you can't, you can't um, fast track trustworthiness. In fact, one of the ways that I did, uh, one of some of the things that I did to try to help rebuild trust in my relationship was I gave full and complete access to my wife to, to every area of my life. I even actually signed a waiver with my counselor saying that I would allow my wife to ask him questions and he was allowed to answer without my knowledge, even about our counseling center, which is very unusual. I had to sign this very long legal document to say that that's possible. I even went so far as to have a few of my accountability buddies have the same kind of agreement. Hey, my wife has your phone number, she, I want you to feel free to tell her anything about how you feel like I'm doing, and I don't need to know about it. Here's what I learned. When you tell the truth, that's all you have to remember. There's a lot of peace in just being truthful. And so walking in the truth is how then you become trustworthy because truth is the foundation of trust. That's why lies always are eroding trust. The more we're deceitful with each other, we're actually eroding trust. So I would say those are some ways. And you were proactive to do that. She That's the other her. key point is that, um, uh, again, in this scenario where the husband has been the one who has betrayed and the wife is the one that's uh, suffered, is uh, husbands, you need to initiate all of these changes in your life. Too many times what I see happen is a well-meaning wife who now has fear and anger and all these emotions then sort of takes control and says, okay, she's setting up the counseling appointment, she's finding the group, she's doing all the research, she's kind of dictating to this husband what he needs to do to be a man of integrity in her eyes. But this is more about him standing up and saying, I was wrong, I failed, I'm taking full responsibility for what I've done, and between me and God, we are gonna go on a journey of being a man of integrity. And that means he needs to be the one, I think, to initiate all of these changes. And by the way, that goes a long way for rebuilding trust because when a wife only has to wear the wife hat instead of the cop, mom, and you know, judge hat, it's a lot better in the long run. Do you have anything else to add to that, Julie? No, it's I think, okay. yeah. All right. Um, man, I got, we got so, I got so much more I wanna ask here. Um, we kinda need to begin to wrap up with, for, with time, but uh, Couple more. Um, what is the? You, you mentioned earlier, Julie, just in regards to the ministry and encountering a lot of spiritual warfare. What are? Can you connect any dots, or maybe um, break some dots that shouldn't be connected between overcoming um, sexual sin uh, and spiritual warfare? Mm -hmm. Just. Any thoughts on Yeah, and I would say not only just sexual sin, but sexual brokenness. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I think there are a couple of trends that we see in the way that Satan distorts what God designed sex to be. And one of them is that he will get you to separate the act of sex from the relational and spiritual significance that it was created to have. Um, and there's lots of ways he, do, he does this. I mean, the most common ways in our culture are like the hookup 
or a Tinder app where you, you don't even know a person, but you just want to have a sexual expression with them without any relational commitment, where God has designed sex to be the ultimate display of a commitment, a covenant with each other. Uh, and so this, this division of my sexuality has nothing to do with how I feel about people or who I am as a Christ follower. Uh, that's one of his, his most effective ways that he does that. Pornography, same thing. I'm going to respond to an image of somebody that I've never met and never will meet. And so there's this breaking of the purpose of sex for what we're using it for. But another way that he does that, I think even within marriage, is we use each other's bodies as a release or as we're supposed to do this without ever thinking about is sex something that's making us more intimate with each other? Are we sharing the journey of sexuality? Are we sharing our fears? Are we sharing our victories? Are we sharing our temptations? Uh, are we working through the problems in a way that I'm getting to know you better? I'm learning to be empathic towards you. And there are marriages where you've been married for decades and having sex for decades, but you've never learned to be intimate. And I think that's part of Satan's work, uh, that he, again, is teaching you to separate the experience from what it was meant to uh, be for us relationally and spiritually. And then the second thing uh, I think is that Satan tells us lies that we believe about sex. And we know from scripture that Satan is a liar, that his native tongue is the lie, he can't speak the truth. And so when you pull back on the layers of brokenness, there's always lies under that. Like women will believe a man just wants me for my body. That's the only way I can be loved. Or I'm damaged goods. I can never be fully loved. If people knew what I was struggling with, they'd reject me. God can't forgive me. Uh, what I've done is too horrible. And so we want to begin looking at those lies and comparing them to the truth. And the ultimate thing that Satan does is he uses this great metaphor of sexuality, which is meant to connect us to God, and he uses it instead to divide us from God. Uh, sex becomes the thing that we're most ashamed of, becomes a reason we don't want to go to church, becomes a reason we're not free to worship. Uh, and I think that's his ultimate plan. Uh, you know, Satan wants to destroy sex because he wants to destroy any connection we might have to knowing the intimacy of God. And, um, and I think at some level, we'd all say that's happened. And so um, redemption looks like, how does God actually enter this area of our life so that we're integrated uh, and we become people that understand our sexuality is something that really is designed to help us draw near to God instead of run away from him. Anything to add to that, Jonathan? Okay, perfect. Um, and we're kind of, you know, coming back around, and you touched on it there again, just with the relationship uh, and stuff. But I thought uh, I really liked. I caught a little bit of this last session yesterday, yes, or a little bit of this in the last session yesterday, where you were giving kind of the the word picture of the castle, yeah, and you standing outside the castle. For those that you know, Mercy Hill home, most of them know that I'm a big John Piper fan. And so, you know, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. But could you just kind of, uh, we can kind of begin to just kind of land the plane just in talking about, again, that authentic intimacy with God and being satisfied in him and how ultimately that, you know, just takes care of so many things. That's what it's all about. You know, my kids, I have three sons and they give me a lot of grief about being the sex lady, uh, and poor, poor guys, that's not fun. My mom talks about sex everywhere. Um, but what I tell them is, really I talk about God. I just use sex as the starting point because it's our pain point. But my heart's desire is not for people to be fixed sexually. It's for this area of our life to expose our need and our longings to know God. And I think most Christians, if we're honest, we'd say we really don't know God. We know about him, we've studied his word, we have an idea of what he expects from us, but we don't know what it is to have an intimate relationship with God where he, we actually sense that he's with us uh, through everything. And I know, Jonathan, that was healing in your story. And regardless of what your story is, brokenness in marriage, sexual abuse, 
of pornography, whatever it is, healing comes through the presence of God. I'm a clinical psychologist saying this. Healing doesn't come through psychology. Psychology can be an on-road to help you understand where your fears are, but there's only one healer. And when we're in his presence, we will be healed. And so uh, the whole journey is how do I get into the presence of God so that he foundationally changes who I am. Could you just, could you give the castle analogy though? Yeah, that, sure. Yeah, just, That's just what you're that waiting one. for. No, yeah, no, I, that shared, was, that, that was I shared about a time about 10 years ago. I was in full-time Christian ministry. I'd been a Christian pretty much all my life. And I shared about how I met a woman, uh, Linda Dillo, who is a, a spiritual mentor for me. And as I got to know her, I had this word picture in my mind that my whole life, I'd been serving the Lord like outside of his castle, like there's a gate. And I'm like working hard, like, God, do you see me? Do you love me? Like, I'm here. Someday I'll get in in heaven and be in your presence. And when I spent time with Linda, it was like I looked over the gate and I'm like, Linda's there. She's right by God, like right at his feet. How did she get there? And, uh, and it began to open up a longing in my heart. Like, is it possible to have that kind of intimacy with God where we're not just outside of the gate serving him and hoping that he approves of us? We're not getting secondhand knowledge about God, but we're actually hearing from his own lips that he loves us and that he created us and that he redeems us. I'll just add to that, one of the most common questions we get from men and parents in our ministry is like, okay, so what's the best internet filter? That's like the most common question that we get, you know, because everybody wants to know, how do we lock down? How do we... And, and some people think I'm flippant when I respond this way, but I'm actually being completely honest. I say, oh, the best internet filter, that's a thriving relationship with Jesus. And we had one guy come to our workshop one time, and about halfway through the workshop, he came up to me and he says, so... It sounds to me like what you're saying is the goal is that I be known and loved by God so that I can know and love others. And I said, bingo. It's not about your sexual struggle. It's not about the manifestation of your struggle. Yeah, we can deal with all of those things, but yeah, the end game, so to speak, is that. To be fully known and loved by God, to experience that without all of our shame and without all of our barriers that we put up in order that as that penetrates our hearts, guess what happens? You won't be able to help but tell the story of God's grace in your life. You won't be able to help but shine that light for others to be able to see because that's where it's at. at the pre in the presence of God, that's where we are healed and made whole. And so that's what our ministries are all about. Um, I think that's it. I think we'll wrap up. Can we just give these guys a hand? Thank you guys so much. Um, here's what we're going to do. Uh, the worship team's going to come back up. Let me invite those guys up. Um, and we're going to do one more, excuse me, one more song. As we're singing, uh, Jonathan and Julie are going to be standing uh, at the back. If um, anybody would like prayer, they will be back there to pray for you. However, let me give the caveat. They will also be hanging around afterwards. If you would like them to pray for you, they will be there to pray for you. Uh, but you don't have time to get free counsel forever right now. They're just they're, they're going to be there to pray for you, and then they're going to be hanging out afterwards, and they'll be able to talk uh, with some of you if you, would, if you would like to do that. Okay? All right. And let me just pray for us one more time as we sing. Father, I, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you just for being good. Lord, I thank you that you care about absolutely every detail of our lives. Even the very hairs of our head are numbered. Um, and your thoughts towards us, Lord, are continual. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would continue just to speak and to have your way and just continue to heal any hearts that may need it, Lord. But Father, I also pray that as we just spend a little bit time singing to you again, Lord, that we could please lift our eyes towards you and that you would be the glory and the lifter of our head. 
We love you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for being a good Savior. Amen. You guys can all stand. Let me sing last song. Who am I not the highest king or the king? I was lost, but he brought me in all his love. Oh